media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 9. Time of confession this morning, time of confession. Henry, if you have readers at home, I know some of you wear glasses all the time, but but how many of you have readers, okay? And how many of you have at least five pairs of readers around the house? Okay. I think my current count, and I, I see, you know, the young ones go, yeah, why, why do you need this? One day, one day it will happen. You just wake up and it's like, Man, the clock's all messed up, and you find out that it's not the clock, but it's your own sight. And uh, the, re- the reason why we have readers is because we want to see with clarity. I know that I can make up and uh, make out in a uh, certain situation if I just have to. You know, I can not have the readers, and I can even read really small print if I'm outside and there's enough light or something like that. But the whole purpose of readers is so that I can see with clarity. It's not that I can't see without them. It's that I want to see with as much clarity as possible. Well, biblically speaking, that's what we want to do. We want to uh, see with clarity the Word of God. It's not that we don't have any insight whatsoever. As we come to Christ, as the very Spirit of God fills our lives, we can open up the Word and we can make out some things there. And yet the more that we study the Word and the more that the, the, the very Spirit of God illuminates parts of our lives, we see with more and more clarity. Jesus wanted to be clear about things, and so he used a lot of different literary techniques as he would teach. Uh, Probably one of the most familiar is parables. He would tell stories. But it wasn't just like fables. It wasn't just kind of he was making up stories. He he would tell parables that have spiritual truths. And he would uh, kind of start a lot of them with uh, things like, the kingdom of God is like... And then he would use this story to illustrate how the kingdom of God was like a treasure hidden in a field or a mustard seed or a farmer who scattered seed. And he would then bring out these spiritual truths. Why? Because he just liked storytelling? Because he thought it was entertaining? He got more votes, popularity because of that? No, because he wanted clarity to these truths that are sometimes hard to grasp. I mean, there's a lot of times in the Bible that God, we get kind of the surface things, But to really grasp, to hold on to the deeper things, and I don't mean that as some kind of unrevealed mystery. I mean, just some concepts in the Bible are hard. They're really difficult. And yet the ministry of Christ was to bring clarification to those things. Part of the things that he did with his time with the disciples, and especially as we see him now, uh, remember Mark is like this, guys. It's like a funnel, okay? And remember the first eight chapters are the first two and a half years of ministry, and then the next three or four chapters are all in the next two months. And then he spends all the rest of the time in that last part of the funnel, just that Passion Week. And we're getting really close to the entrance of when Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And so as we come down this funnel, we're getting more and more and more to the cross and to the crucifixion and the resurrection. As we get there, he's spending this intimate time with the disciples and with those that are still following, and he wants to bring clarity. So he uses parables. A lot of times he would use uh, compare and contrast, like dark and and or day and night, uh, rock and sand, build a house upon the rock, not upon the sand. And he would use those kind of contrasting things, and people would go, okay, I get it now. Yeah, when I build my life without you... It's like on the sand, and man, the waves can come, and I'm just all over the place. 
If I build it on your word and your principles and who you are, Christ, I'm like a man who builds a house on a, on a rock. And even when the sands or when the storms come, I, I still stand. Not because of me, but because of you. Well, today we're going to see another one of those things that Jesus used quite a bit, and it's hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is an exaggeration to illustrate a real truth. For example, has anybody ever said, or at least thought, you know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse? Okay, you know, more than likely you are not going to go out and actually eat a horse, and especially a horse in its entirety. But everybody around you knew what you meant. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. And so they kind of got that concept, you're really, really hungry. Well, that's hyperbole. It doesn't mean that you're literally going to go get a horse and then devour every bite of that horse. It it means an illustration that is an exaggeration to illustrate a real truth. And today we begin to see that Jesus uses this technique to actually demonstrate about the seriousness of sins. For example, we just saying amazing grace. And do you think we have kind of a little bit of a grasp of, of a grace? I, I mean, we sing about how we were, you know, sinful and, and lost, and we sing about these other things. So do you think we get a little bit of grasp? But do you think that we see with total clarity? Can you imagine? I don't know that, you know, I, I really don't know if we're going to sing this or not in heaven, but can you imagine if we did sing in heaven amazing grace? that for the first time we would really understand the total holiness of God because that would have been revealed to us, the total sinfulness of man because that would have been revealed to us, and that it wasn't just a gap like this, but it wasn't a gap that is unimaginable, and how the cross of Christ and the, the sacrifice of Christ and the work of Christ brought this immeasurable gap into a, a relationship with Father and his children. Listen, can you imagine that as much as we like that song now and have sang that traditionally for years and years and years, how if we do sing that in heaven, I don't know if we will or not, how it would take on such clarity. It'd be like, okay, before we were singing it like this, but now we're singing it like this because we see the fullness of all those things by which we sing. Well, that's kind of... I think maybe what Paul had in mind a little bit in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, for now we see in in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That until we get into the very presence of God and the fullness of God, now we see things a little dimly. And some of these things are really, really important. And so our purpose of studying the word, and especially in an expository way, verse by verse and kind of going through, is that we can see with as much clarity as possible. And we come upon... Excuse me, Mark chapter 9, and starting with verse 42, and we begin to see these things that Christ is trying to teach. And now again, some of these things are really hard. For example, the holiness of God, that's a hard thing to really grasp in clarity. The sufficiency of the cross, we can say those words, but do we really get that? The beauty of heaven or the agony of hell. And so Jesus is teaching these things, And in the passage this morning, as we come upon it, there's two things that he wants us to understand. Okay? Two things. Keep it real simple. Holiday weekend. Don't want to tax your mind. Okay? But I do want to tax your heart to to understand these two things because this is what Jesus pointed out. Number one, disciples, that is, those who would call themselves followers of Christ, are to take very seriously our influence on others. We are to take very, very, very seriously 
our influence on others. Second thing, disciples, followers of Christ are called to be, to deal radically with sin in our own lives. We're to deal radically with sin in our lives. Look, look at what Jesus says, Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe it in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now the little ones here could be, in verses previous, there, there is a child that actually comes up and uh, is there with Jesus and Jesus embraces the child. Uh, the word that's used here in the Greek can also mean uh, little in faith, little in maturity. And he's talking about followers, and so I don't know that he's just talking about children. It certainly has that application. I see these young men over here, and as they sit there, and, and there's great responsibility that we as a church have to these young men, that we would provide opportunity for these young men to follow hard and strong after Jesus Christ. That responsibility is there upon the parents. It's, it's upon, you know, it's, it's this shared responsibility that we have. So certainly it has that application, but don't limit it to that application. For as we gather this morning, maybe there are some that are young in the faith. They've just been walking with Christ a short while. Or, <coughs> excuse me, is there a possibility that uh, in, in our gathering today that there would be some that are immature in their faith? Maybe they've actually been following Christ for six, seven years. That is, that they had a, a relationship with Christ for these years, and yet they really haven't matured in that. That is really where Jesus is addressing this. And he's saying, okay, there's great responsibility for those that are walking in Christ, those are following Christ, and their influence on uh, over others. Again, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Can we show that next picture there? That's a millstone, that, that center part. Uh, in fact, the one that Jesus is referring to is probably bigger. Um, when I was in Israel, that's about the size of the one that I saw. The, the Greek here actually talks about the donkey millstone. And, and so uh, in that use, this wasn't just something you could go out there and you and I manually could kind of kind of push through. No, you would get donkeys and you would put either one or if it was really big, you'd get two and they'd be on opposite ends of kind of a, a wooden thing that would go out and they would walk around in the circle and it would grind all this, you know, stuff. And, and those were heavy. In order for it to grind, you had to have this heavy millstone on top of whatever you were grinding and just the friction between those things would tear it apart. So does that make sense? So here's the thing. Can you imagine in this illustration two things? Number one, the Jewish people were really afraid of water. I mean, they, they were fishermen and all that. They didn't, the, let me put it this way. Their, one of their greatest fears of death was to drown. I mean, not that anybody would just say, okay, that's in my top ten. I really would prefer to drown than this or that. But the Jewish people really have kind of this history there, we learn, that that was like the worst death that they could imagine. And so Jesus is using this at twofold. He's, number one, playing upon one of their greatest fears. It registers them. Oh, I don't want to drown. He said, but, but I want you to know, it would be like having this millstone around your neck. Now, I don't care how strong you are. I don't know if you, I don't care if you're an Olympic swimmer. They put that around your neck and tells you in the water, guess what's going to happen? 
the law of gravity. <laughs> it just happens, okay? In other words, there is no possibility of you fighting your way out of this. There is no possibility of you surviving this in, in a way that uh, where you can just make it on your own. And so it would have left a mental impression upon the crowd that day that was pretty deep. You know, I, I don't know that that was an illustration that they would have known before. But all of a sudden, can you imagine, they left that day with that in their mind. Uh, kind of like what we do sometimes with, um, how many of you took driver's ed? Okay. Do you remember, Q, did they ever show any videos or films? Yeah. And it wasn't those sweet little grandmas driving down the road and, you know, just, you know, bumping into somebody else. They showed these horrific things. Do you remember that? Especially if you took it back in like when you were 15 and 16 and 17. And they wanted to scare the bejeebers out of you. They really did. And I'm using the technical term bejeebers there. But uh, because I want you to know this was how serious it was. And so they would show you all these things. And so like texting and driving, you know, most time you're not just going to have this, oh, please don't text and drive. No, they show crashes. They show, you know, graveyards. They show these things. Why? Because they're trying to make this impression. This is serious. And it has really, really grave endings. No pun intended. This is serious. And this is what Jesus does. This is why he uses hyperbole here. And he begins to say, if you call somebody sin, the Greek word there is where we get our word scandal. And he said, it's actually scandalous if you as a believer would lead other believers in, in a sinful path. He said, it's scandalous. Now think about that application. Think about that application husbands and wives in your relationship of marriage. Is there a responsibility, if you're both believers, is there a responsibility that you would have to, to make sure that you're not leading the other one in sin? Yeah. That's not just good sense. That's not just, oh, you're a good husband, you're a good wife. You No, it's biblical. Think about it, parents. See these great parents here, and we we see you know how you're investing in your kids, and you want the very best for your kids in every aspect of life. And Jesus would direct that to us. Hey, as they are young, are young in their faith, do not lead them down the path of sinfulness. Now, again, I don't know that there'd be any you know mother or father that would just be you know some egregious kind of sin over here that we did, but even our sin of pride. Our sin of holding a grudge? Could that creep into the way that we do life and our kids kind of capture that? Well, this is why we're not going to grandma's because grandma did this. And, you know, it's going to be a very cold day somewhere before we go to grandma's again. What did we just teach our kids? Biblical forgiveness? Restoration of broken relationships? Or that being right, perhaps, is above all things? Folks, it's not just, hey, let's go out, let's, you know, teaching some three-year-old to go party. You know, we're, we're not talking about that. Kind of, we're talking about these things that are just attitudes of the heart and the mind of natural flesh of man that we could just kind of let, kind of come over and we could teach our kids that. I think it applies here. Jesus goes, man, there is great responsibility for those in Christ and your relationship with other people. And so we think about that on a spousal 
response. We, we think about that on a parent's response. We think, we should think about that on the friend's response. Folks, we should think about that in a community of believers response as church people. I have responsibility to you. Remember a couple of weeks ago? When Brian and Debbie came over and we talked about it, I said, hey, you always make sure that you don't just have church people in your young marriages, but have gospel people in your young marriages. Not just people that go to church. And, and I told the guys, I said, one of y'all messed up. We're at your door. We're at your door. And we will drag you out behind the barn. Because we love you. And because we have that responsibility to you. Folks, this is what Jesus says. Man, you have a great responsibility. Following Christ and, and following Christ is, is not just a personal thing. It, does, it is personal. It's, it's, it's this great personal beginning, but it extends out. And he says here, you have responsibility to others. The stumbling block, which is part of that phrase, you're going to be a stumbling block. This is really wide in its application. This isn't just, hey, let's go rob this bank, Fred. Okay. It's not just these things that we think are, okay, that's clearly wrong. Pride, judgmentalism. I mean, in the region and culture that we have, guys, again, I'm not telling you how to think politically and all that. I'm just saying, be very careful of what you're teaching your kids and your grandchildren and the comments that you make. And I'm not picking sides only if you're this side or this side. I'm making it in a way. We've just got to be so careful. Do the things that we teach, do the things that we say, reflect biblical truth in the very heart of Christ. Let me ask you an important question. As a whole, do you think that we are living in a culture, a cultural environment that is moving more towards maximizing personal responsibility to others or minimizing our personal responsibility of others? I, I heard this kind of minimizing. Yeah, man, you, know, you do you, I do me, we all do, you know, we just do each, you know, I just do me. and That's not what Jesus thought. I'm like, oh man, he said, no. As a believer, as a follower of Christ, you have responsibility. And you can't just look the other way, and you can't just kind of let somebody go off to the side. No. And you see that they're knee-deep in water? Jump in the water before they get neck-deep in water. And yet we live in a world that I would think in a culture that says, no, you know, we're just not... Now, again, we're to have all of our opinions, and and we're we're really free with our opinions nowadays... But what is our purpose to express ourselves or to train others? Jesus doesn't stop there. Look what he says. Verse 43, he goes from kind of this relationship with others to the second part of the the lesson that he's trying to get, and that is the drastic disciplines to follow hard after Christ, to, to just say no to sinfulness in our life. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to unquenchable fire. Now, is Jesus saying that you can lose your salvation if you go out there and you're a believer because he's talking to believers, 
And it, that's really the context that he's speaking in. And that you're going to go to hell if you do a certain number of sins. No, he's using hyperbole, okay? And we have to remember that because theologically we could get into some mixed uh, kind of murky waters here if if we weren't. I don't believe that he's saying you're going to lose your salvation. He's using hyperbole and he's using hell as one of the illustrations of how much destruction and bondage and death we can bring to our lives when we allow sin into our lives. So do you get that? I mean, and you can disagree with that. You can have a different interpretation. I, I would love that conversation because I'm always curious how, how you would. But we have to always, this is why we preach in context. And we look at this situation. He's using hyperbole, but he's using it for the purpose of going, this is how drastic this is. This very graphic illustration moves from causing others to sin to dealing with sin in our own lives. And Jesus begins a three-part kind of survey of the body. He starts off, you know, okay, if your hand calls you, cut it off. And he goes to the eyes and he goes to the feet. Now, is he into mutilation? No. What he's into is, I, I love how one old pastor put it uh, from centuries ago. He goes, it's not, he's not into the mutilation of the human body. He's into the mortification of sin. I love that. Just that whole word, thought process, the mortification of sin. And that's just one of those classic lines. I go, man, you got it right. That's what he's about here. And yet he talks about this, and, and he says, here's the end result. This time, not a millstone, but hell. And the word that is used here that Jesus uses is Gehenna, the, the Valley of Hinnon. And uh, it was a place that everybody in that day would have understood. It was a place outside the city. And it was the place where they took trash and dead animals and carcasses and human waste and other things. It's, it was always on fire and it was always smelly. It was just disgusting. And they would have been familiar with this terminology. And so it's one of those that he, he talks about this and he uses this picture time after time after time. Look at verse 45. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with, with two feet than to be thrown into hell. Look at verse 47 and 48. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The description that he gives there in verse 48 about this, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is from Isaiah 66, 24, and he's using that reference. Uh, interesting note, uh, anybody missing verse 44 and verse 46 in your passage? Yeah. If you have the King James Bible, it should be, it will probably be in there. If you have uh, ESV, if you have some of the other translations, you go straight from verse, uh, verse 43 to 45. Um, the reason is because we don't find the text of verse 44 and 46 in the oldest manuscripts. And so when you come across something like that, and all it is is a repeat of verse 48. And somewhere along the lines, they, they think that some scribes, as careful as they were with you know scribing out the word of God, that they thought, man, this is so good, we're just going to add it each time. And so they put in a verse you know, 44 and a verse 46. They were repetitive there. We don't find that in the oldest manuscripts. It doesn't mean it's not biblical. No, it's right there in verse 48, so it's biblical. But it was probably added on because they thought this was so important. 
Our culture has pretty much dismissed hell as some primitive, archaic fable used to scare people and to get them to conform to a certain set of standards. This is not how Jesus uses this. Jesus is not trying to scare the bejeebers out of somebody. Jesus is not here to, to conformity in the sense of just conformity to religious morality. Jesus uses this extreme hyperbole, even in this sense of cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye, cutting off your leg, because he says there is an inherent danger, guys, that even as believers of God, there can still be bondage in our lives. Remember what the, the New Testament writers, don't go back to the bondage of sin. Were they saying that you can lose your salvation? No, I, I don't interpret it that way. I don't see that minimizing the, the work of Christ. What it says is, is it possible, just to answer this question this one, is it possible for you as a believer, a follower of Christ, to allow sin in your life to such a way that you become constrained by that sin? You become in bondage to that sin. It keeps you from the full liberty that Christ has died to give you. Yes. So Jesus says, take this seriously. Take your, your, your influence on others seriously and your responsibility to others, your, your spouse, your, your children, your friends, other people in the church, this community of believers. Take this seriously. But he said, look into your own life and realize that it would be better for you to do without this than to be in the bondage of that. Do you know that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. For all the people who said, you know, I think it's just archaic. I think it's used to scare people. Any intelligent person, any people, you know, when people talk about hell, it's quite ignorant. No, let, let me just go on record, guys. If you can call me ignorant because of talking about hell. Now, I think it's arrogant that we wouldn't talk about something that Jesus pronounced so profoundly in his word. To scare people, to guilt people, No. To show what we've been saved from and that there's still a bondage that can happen in our lives even as believers today. Is there anything more sad? Well, let me change that because there is something more sad than a believer going back into the bondage. And that is somebody just lost. But isn't it almost just as sad to somebody that was living for the Lord and following after Christ and then we see that choices that they allow into their life and they are back into the bondage of that sin. Isn't that sad? Doesn't that break your heart? Not in a judgmental way. Oh yeah, man, I can listen. Forget the judgmental part. Should it break our heart? I mean, this is what makes Jesus weep over Jerusalem, guys. This is what breaks our heart when we see fellow believers that knew freedom and knew liberty and they find themselves back into bondage. And so forget the judgmental attitude. Can you go and help rescue somebody? Can you go out and, and be part of, of God just saying, man, we, we love you and we care for you? He says, man, we have personal responsibility for one another as believers. He said, you have personal responsibility in your own life. And in one way, it's two different things, but are they not connected? Because as I would allow sin into my own life, 
is that going to influence my spouse, my children, other church members, other people like that? Do you see how these are two different things, and yet they are bound together in our influence? Hell is not just some tactic to scare us, Father. Hell is God's judgment on sin. It's a reality. We are not to minimize it whatsoever because it was the very life of our Savior that brought us freedom from that. And this penalty of hell, whether it's described in in, in great detail or, or just mentioned throughout the Bible, the, the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. That's pretty serious, guys. That's not hyperbole. That's not like, man, let's just scare them. No, Jesus is not trying to scare you. He's trying to tell you the truth. But let me ask you this. Is the truth sometimes scary? See, there's two different motivations there. Sometimes if I'm just trying to get you to do conformity, I'm just trying to scare you. I'm trying to, you know, we may use those tactics. We'll show films of this is what happens when you text and drive. And do we want them, do we want those films and those reminders to scare ourselves and and teenagers and others from texting and driving? Yes. But is the motive of just scaring them or is the motive because we love them so much and we know the inherent truth of the danger of that and we don't want them to be in that next poster? See, there's a reality that is the foundation of that and that reality is a relationship that we have. It's not just judgmentalism. And that's the responsibility that God calls us into. Heaven is real, guys. Hell is torment and hell is eternal. So what do we learn from these extreme hyperboles that he uses, that what we see, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. What we do, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Where we go, if your feet offend you, cut it off. He's saying, be aware of the things that are happening there. In fact, if we go back, look at Mark 9, 43, 45, and 47. I realize that print's really, really small. And especially where I highlight it in red, it's almost impossible to read. I apologize for that. Okay? But what I wanted you to say is this phrase that he uses in each one of those things. It is better. It is better. It is better. He's not suggesting pulling out an eye and saying this is just everyday stuff, cutting off a, a limb. No, he said it's better. This can take on all kinds of different forms. Are there some times that you have to give up a relationship because it is an unhealthy relationship? No. Does it mean that you have to hate that person or be judgmental toward that person? No. This means I, I, I can't I can't be in this relationship. This isn't spiritually healthy. This is adding more bondage than it is liberty in my life. I've seen people give up jobs. Could you be in a job where it really wasn't leading you to spiritual maturity? Yeah. And so they just had to make another choice. I've seen men give up computers or phones because they go, okay, I have a tendency toward this, and I don't need that in my life. This is not helping me mature and grow toward Christ. And so I can't believe you gave up a computer. Man, everybody needs a phone. 
He's not saying, he said, it is better for you. He's not saying that there's not a cost involved here. I mean, can you imagine going without a phone? Most of us would say no. That is ridiculous. And there's a part of it that we've become so attached to that as a means of communication and, and other things in our lives that we can get that. But what is he saying? It is better if this phone just happens to be something that would lead you down a darker path that is not edifying in your life. He says, give up the phone. Does that make sense, guys? I'm not against phones. <laughs> Got one, well, right there recording the message. But if it causes me to sin, that's why he uses, it is better for you to enter life crippled. It is better for you to enter life lame. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. He's saying, okay, yeah, is there a cost? Is this an extreme? Yes. But it is better than being back in bondage. So two questions this morning as we close. Have you ever considered what would be better for you to cut off than to become enslaved, ensnared again into uh, slavery of sin? Have you, have you ever considered, wow, this is something in my life that I need to consider cutting off? Because it's not really prospering in my walk with Christ. It's not really maturing my walk with Christ. It's not deepening my walk with Christ. Actually, it's uh, kind of turning the affection of my heart away from Christ at times. Second question. On this weekend, when we honor and remember those who have given their very lives to preserve life and liberty, I've never served in, in the armed forces, but I'm sure I'm appreciative of the men and women who have that give us the freedom to preach the word of God without fear. Don't know how long that's going to happen, but at least for today, we can preach it. On this weekend that we honor those because we see the sacrifice that was given, have you ever considered the great responsibility that you have as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to the other people to, to help lead them to maturity and not destruction? Two very important questions that we derive from this text. Jesus using some really extreme hyperbole. Really, you know, cut it off, pluck it out. Man, if you do this, it's better a millstone thrown around your neck and then you thrown to the bottom of the stream. I don't know that he was going to go out the next day and if he saw somebody offending a young child or somebody young in the faith, that Jesus goes, get the millstone. <laughs> hyperbole, but hyperbole with a purpose. Not just to be extravagant in his expression but to show the seriousness by which God takes sin in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of Jesus. And Father, that he was so concerned with us having clarity that, Father, not only have you provided your spirit to help us to understand and grasp spiritual truth, but, Father, that Jesus would use parables and illustrations and compare and contrast. And in this case, Father, exaggerate hyperbole so that we can say, man, that's, that's pretty big. That's pretty powerful. Well, we need to take our responsibility of leading others and, and affecting others really responsible because Jesus said a millstone would be thrown around our neck. Father, we see that you take very seriously 
this, this call to purity and, and holiness in our lives. He said, if our eye offends us, pluck it out. If our hand offends us, if it's leading to a, a path of, of slavery again, Father, that would cut it off. Father, there's not even one part of me that believes that Jesus was talking about self-mutilation. But that he was using these dramatic hyperboles, these these illustrations, to help us grasp, just like we put on the readers so that we can see with a little bit more clarity, Father, that we can begin to grasp with a little bit more clarity that you take sin very, very, very seriously. Because, Father, you see the bondage that it brings back into our life. How completely sad, how completely heartbreaking, Father, it should be to see one who has been liberated from sin because of the work of Christ, only to go back into the bondage of sin. Father, and that is each one of us could happen to. Father, please surround us by people that love us enough to run after us. Father, help us to define discipline in our own lives, to make bold choices. To say, man, I, I will leave this job or I, I, I will leave this relationship. I will, I will put down this phone. I will do whatever if it is not edifying, if it's not, if it's distracting me and, and turning my affection for my good Lord. Father, give us the boldness to do that rather than excuses of how it's not all that bad. What a high call to holiness. What a su- sufficient savior to save us from it. And what a powerful spirit you have now entrusted to us, dwelling within us, Father, until that day of redemption to empower us to actually live this kind of life. We love you and we thank you as we pray all these things in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.